Father God, uh, we are a blessed people in this country to be able to have freedom, freedom to worship. And uh, we come into this room like so many other gatherings of people uh, around this nation who take time out of their, their week just to worship you. When we come into this room, God, we want to hear from you. We want to give you our praise and give you our attention and, and ask you to make use of this time in our lives. So God, would you make use of this time as we study together, as we look at your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we launch into a series that's entitled, How Big Is Your God? It's an important question. Uh, and how you answer it is gonna have all kinds of serious consequences in your life. Truth be told, most of us, much of the time, have a view of God that is way too small. We diminish his holiness and his hatred of sin, and so we take sin lightly in our lives. We diminish his majesty, the fact that he is wholly entitled to our worship of him, and so we take things like worship and obedience lightly. We diminish his power and his uh, ability to care for us. We constantly underestimate that ability. We are not convinced that we are absolutely safe in the hands of a fully competent, all-knowing, ever-present, utterly loving God, big God. And here's the deal. If I wake up in the morning and I go through the day with a small God, that is a God of my making instead of the God he really is, there are consequences to that. I will not have the priorities I should have in the daily and weekly rhythms of my life if I make my God a small God. Things like Sabbath, things like worship, things like reading scripture, things like prayer, these things will be things I do when and if I get around to it, but they won't be priorities in my life. They won't be disciplines that I use, tools that I use to shape my soul and shape my character. And I will likely to uh, live in a state of fear and, and anxiety and worry and concern given circumstances that might be challenging me. Because after all, I believe everything depends on me. I need to figure out solutions to my problems. I need to figure it out for myself because my God is small and he's not a lot of help. So when I have a need financially or relationally or personally, uh, physically, spiritually, if I live with a small God, I will find it unnatural to pray because I'm not really sure, to be honest, that God will make much of a practical difference, that my prayers really matter. If I face a temptation to speak deceitful words in order to avoid trouble, you ever been there? Or if I can get credit for something at work that doesn't really belong to me, well, I'll go ahead and do that if I don't believe there is a, a big God who sees everything done in secret and then one day rewards. I'll go ahead and do it. If I don't live in the security of a big God's acceptance and a, and a big God's love, well, then I become a slave to whatever other people think of me. And I get all twisted up in knots if someone disapproves of me, even if I'm doing the right thing, but they disapprove. And so here's the point. When we make God small, 
We offer prayers without faith and worship without awe and service without joy. And we suffer without hope. And the result is a little life lived cautiously, worrisomely, fearfully, and my life is just about me. A life with little vision, a life with little purpose, a life without much perseverance. And it's against this backdrop that the writers of scripture never tire of telling us our God is a big God. He is a God who is in control. He is a God that is unstoppable. He is a God that is always every day trustworthy. God is not a little God. He is not a local tribal God. You see, there was, and uh, there always has been little tribal gods that kind of dwell among the people of God. Uh, In the Old Testament, you had Canaanite gods. You had the god El and the god Asherah. And then you had second tier gods like Baal or Moloch or Anath. They were local tribal gods in charge of just certain things. In New Testament times, of course, that was a culture where you had the Greek and Roman pantheon, gods like Zeus and Poseidon and Hera and Apollo and Athena and so on. And today, you know, we look at those cultures and we think, boy, how foolish of them, but we're not really any different. I mean, we have all kinds of gods that different people worship. Work, money, power, success. Sometimes it's our children, our grandchildren, our recreation, all things we think we need to make life work, to make life meaningful, to make us, what's the word? Happy. But scripture writers are always telling us, always reminding us that that we serve this, this great big God, a God who made it all, a God who controls it all, a God who governs it all and keeps it all moving in a purposeful direction. So whatever you need, and by need, I mean really need, whatever you really need, God is big enough to supply it. Whatever your challenge, God is big enough to help you meet it. And the passage that we're gonna look at today is a a perfect example and reminder of this. Today, we're gonna look at a man that we find in the Old Testament, the Old Testament book of Judges. Um, This is back before Israel had kings, kings like Saul or David or Solomon. They were living in the promised land, but they had problems. And their problems were called Midianites. The Midianites were oppressing the Israelites, okay? And we turn to Judges chapter six, starting in verse one, and this introduces us to the story. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and other people of the east, meaning east of the Jordan, other people of the east would come up against them and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. 
And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So the Midianites were like swarms of locusts. There were so many of them. They were, they were devouring everything. And Israelites were hiding. They were living in dens and living in caves up in the mountains. God was using the Midianites to discipline his people. They had been ignoring him for a long, long time and actually had been worshiping other local tribal gods. But now they're in pain. Does this sound familiar? Anybody here? Now they're in pain. A lot of pain. Things are bad. So they cry out to God for help. And God very mercifully hears their prayers and he answers them. And God comes to one of the most unlikely characters in all of Israel to be a hero, to be a judge of Israel. He comes to a guy named Gideon. Judges 6, verse 11. says, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth. That's a tree. Sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, uh, which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Uh, do you notice anything odd here? Odd, I mean, besides an angel sitting under the terebinth. I mean, uh, you know, beyond that, do you notice anything odd here? Where is Gideon threshing wheat? Yeah, in a wine press. A wine press was usually a, a pit in the ground, oftentimes stone, a stone pit would be preferable. And normally wheat would be threshed on the threshing floor, which would be on a hill in the open where the wind would blow. Wine would be uh, crushed in a stone pit. Um, you needed the wind to separate the chaff from the wheat. And the whole process of, of separating chaff from wheat was a out in the open affair. Uh, you still see this in parts of the world. Uh, it's a big open visible operation. A wine press, however, again, was usually a stone hole in the ground. Point is this. It would be a terrible, terrible place to try to thresh wheat. So it's kind of a, a ridiculous thing to do, actually. But the reason Gideon does it is he is terrified of the Midianites. He's afraid that they're going to see him and take away his little bit of wheat. And so he's being very careful. He's being very timid. He's being very cautious, almost comically so. He is threshing wheat in a wine press. Get the picture? And we are told this because it is crucial to the story that we get a right picture of who Gideon is. Gideon is not an action hero. That's the point. He's not a strong man. He is no Samson. He is not a confident, you know, my God is a big God kind of guy. If a movie were made of Gideon's life, he would not be portrayed by an action hero. He'd be more of a, do you remember that show? Some of you will remember this. Some of you are too young, but there was a show a long, long time ago called The Andy Griffith Show. It took place in Mayberry. Remember that? Remember Andy's sidekick was who? Barney Fife. Barney Fife, played by Don Knotts. If you think of Barney Fife, you've got the picture of Gideon. Um, <laughs> That, that's what we're really talking about here. He is a guy who is threshing wheat in a wine press because he's scared of the Midianites. And uh, he is just trying to hide and keep, you know, off the radar, so to speak. Judges 6, 12 says this. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Gideon, and said to him, the Lord is with you, 
O mighty man of valor. That is literally divine comedy right there. I'm not making that up. That is divine. That's hilarious what we read. The angel says this to Barney Fife. And of course, that doesn't make any sense to Barney or Gideon at all. And so Gideon responds and he says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? It's a good question, really. And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Good question. But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. You see, Gideon's life is frustrating. Gideon's life is oppressive and he is not sure about God anymore. God is little. God is distant. God is not very caring. God is not very powerful. God seems to be far, far away. God is small to Gideon. The local gods, in fact, to Gideon seem bigger, more important, more powerful. And one of the consequences is that when you live with a little God, there's not much you can do about your circumstances. There's not much to hope in, and there's not much to hope for or to pray about. And so you learn to live without dreams and without possibilities because things aren't really going to change. We are just specks of dust blowing in the wind. So as things were yesterday, so they will be again tomorrow. My habits, my failures, my relationships, my flaws, my problems, my predicaments, I'll just have to learn to thresh wheat in a wine press. Now, my neighborhood, my school, my community, my world is what it is. And the Midianites are too big for me or my small God to do anything about it. Nothing's going to change. And so my job, living with a view of God that way, is to just stay off the radar, just survive, just plod through yet another oppressive day. The Lord comes to Gideon once again, Judges 6, 14. He says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. How would you assess Gideon's confidence level at this point? You see, this is not a strong, confident, you know, I got a big God kind of guy here. Here's the deal with Gideon. He has found a way of viewing himself and his God that lets him rationalize his ambivalence. He has found a way of viewing himself and his God that lets him justify saying no to this unbelievably big call of God on his life. He says, God, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the weakest of my family. And then God says back to him, so to speak, Gideon, it's not your natural charm or your good looks that are going to accomplish this task. That's what God is saying to him. 
Judges 6.16, uh, that's what God means when he says, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. That's what God is saying. Gideon, it's not gonna be up to you. And this right here, this declaration that God makes in Judges 6.16, that is the hinge in this story on which everything revolves right there. And I would say that's the hinge, not just for Gideon. That's the hinge for you and for me as well. Our view of God. You see, what is unthinkable on my own, what is absolutely impossible on my own, what is undoable on my own becomes unstoppable when it is me trusting and following God and me doing what God calls me to do. Many years ago, there was a movie. Uh, it's, it's, not, uh, it, it's not the movie with uh, Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston called My Bodyguard. It's, called, it's a different movie called My Bodyguard. And this was a movie about a young boy who was always getting teased, always getting bullied, always getting beat up, in fact. It's really quite a good film. At one point, this, uh, this young man makes friends with this, this uh, guy who's way bigger than him. In fact, he's kind of a giant kid. He's kind of what you would expect to happen if you, Hercules and Wonder Woman got married, right? If they had a child. Anyway, this new friend that he befriends kind of changes everything in his life slowly. Uh, Almost immediately, when people find out that this is this young boy's friend, they start treating him differently because they're afraid of the consequences of making this big guy really angry. Uh, they're pretty sure that if they pick on or bully the young boy, the little boy, uh, the big guy is going to beat him up. <laughs> now, what's interesting in this movie is that the little boy begins to change and begins to transform through this friendship that's created with this big friend. Uh, he's at first timid, he's at first frightened, but he begins to develop a confidence even on his own when the big friend's not with him. His attitude changes. He begins to stand up for other kids who are getting bullied, even when it might mean he takes a licking. He becomes a different person. He's ready to confront other bullies. His anxiety and his fear starts to go away. There's a certain boldness and a certain confidence that develops. Why? Well, it all starts because he... He knows he does have the big friend, right? That he can call on if he needs to. And he becomes convinced that he's not alone. He becomes convinced that he's ultimately safe. And there's a part of him that knows that if you mess with him too harshly, too badly, he's gonna call on his big friend, right? <laughs> and so the writer of scripture poses this question for you and for me. It's an important question. How big is your God? Do you know that you have a bodyguard? You see, there is a God who is greater than you. And that God has come. And he is a God who is always with you. And that's sort of what's going on here in the story with Gideon. This big God comes to Gideon, Barney Fife, the character, and he says, Gideon, you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live your life in hiding. You don't have to thresh wheat in a wine press. I am, Gideon, a big, big God, and I'm calling you to do something. So decide. Will you follow my calling? Will you do life trusting 
in me, even in fearful circumstances. He tells Gideon to begin uh, something. He kind of moves in stages with Gideon, which is the way God works in our lives. Um, he kind of, it's, it's a process. He tells Gideon to start the process by tearing down an altar that was built to the god Baal. Uh, this is a god that the Midianites and many other people in ancient Mesopotamia worshiped. Baal was a local tribal god, as I said. He was actually, uh, his, word, his name uh, in Hebrew means Lord. And uh, Baal was viewed to be the god of storm, the god of rain, and therefore, too, the god of crops. The god who supplies what's needed for crops. And Israel often worshipped Baal. Uh, his worship involved cultic prostitution, uh, sexual immorality, and even human sacrifice. And you got to kind of think about that, what that means. Children sacrificed to worship a God, uh, people wanting something so badly and believing that sacrificing one of their children just might get that God to do for them what they want him to do. It's a very dark deal. And God looks in on this and sees his people worshiping this God, this dark capricious God. And God says, this has got to stop. I am not Baal. People cannot think of me the way they think of this God. And so Gideon, you are going to stop this. That's where Gideon's call begins. I want you to begin by tearing down this altar to Baal, he tells Gideon. And here's the kicker. This is not a Midianite altar to Baal. This is an altar that has been built by the Israelites. And even worse, it's an altar that was built by Gideon's father, Joash. Now, there's all kinds of things going on in the story here, very interesting things. Uh, how often do you think Gideon has stood up to his father? Often? Remember, he said, I am the least in my family. That's his own appraisal, right? But here we do see Gideon taking some steps of trust, some steps of faith. His God is getting a little bigger. We read these words in Judges 6, 27. It says, so Gideon took 10 men of his servants. And I might add, those are people who can't not help him. They're servants, right? He didn't look for volunteers. He said, you servants come with me. Um, so Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family, and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night, okay? At least he did it. He didn't want anybody to see him uh, or to know that it was him who did it. But the next morning, people wake up and the altar to Baal, the God who gives water to their crops, that altar has been destroyed. And the people of that town, that city, that village are quite upset. They're angry. This is an offense. It will anger Baal. And they, interestingly enough, don't come looking for Gideon. They come looking for Joash, the father. And they say to Joash, you know, where is your son? Your son needs to be put to death. This is a serious matter if you're Gideon, right? And Gideon's dad does something here that's quite remarkable. 
He says to the men in this village, he says, you know what? If Baal is really a God, then let Baal take care of himself. Let Baal prove it by getting revenge on Gideon himself. It's almost like he's saying, you know what? It's time for us to return to the one true God we're supposed to be worshiping. It's almost like Gideon's faith is becoming a little bit contagious. Perhaps his father's heart is being warmed to worship again the God, the one true God of Israel. Maybe his recollection of and remembrance of who this God is is getting bigger as well. And now it's time for a big test. God calls Gideon to go up against the Midianites. First test is over. He calls him to free his people. And understandably, Gideon is afraid. Even though God has already commanded him, and even though God has made a promise that he will be the one who will do this, not you, Gideon, I will do this. I will be with you. Gideon comes back to God and he says this. He says, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor, He's back in the hole again, threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. Gideon is being very, very cautious. He's actually testing God here. This is not a good thing that Gideon is doing. God has already promised Gideon he will be with him. God has already told Gideon what he wants him to do. This is not a good thing, this fleece. It's actually amazing to me, and I guess partly not that surprising, how gracious God is here with Gideon. Instead of saying enough, get on with it, he actually goes along with Gideon's test, not once, but twice. And now finally, the impression is that Gideon's ready to go. And so we get to chapter seven. They are now going to go to war with the Midianites. Everything, the crescendo, it's building, you see, towards a climax. Gideon sends out a call for nearby tribes to join him in this attack on the Midianites. And he recruits 32,000 soldiers, which at first sounds like, oh, good. This is good. The problem is the Midianites have 135,000 soldiers. Not so good. They're outnumbered four to one. God comes to Gideon says, you know, the enemy has 135,000 troops. You have 32,000. You have a numbers problem, Gideon. And I imagine Gideon is thinking, oh God, thank you. I am so glad you noticed this. Uh, we are badly, badly, badly outnumbered. And I am so glad you're gonna give us more soldiers. But God instead does the opposite. God says, your numbers problem isn't one of having too few soldiers. It's one of having too many. I want you to send some of them home, God tells Gideon. And uh, God actually tells Gideon that anyone who is afraid, send them home. Well, that would have been Gideon. I mean, he would have been one, but he, didn't, he doesn't get a pass on this, right? But 22,000 of his 32,000 troops all are willing to say, yeah, yeah, I'm a little afraid. I'm going home. And they leave. He's down to 10,000 soldiers. He's outnumbered now 13 to one. This is going from bad to worse. And then God says, Gideon, you know, you still have a numbers problem. Gideon says, oh, that's okay, God. Don't need any more help on the numbers issue. I got this. I imagine is what he's thinking at least. But this is what God says. God says, you know, everyone who laps the water with his tongue, reaches down, gets the water, drinks up, you know, that kind of a thing. 
Everybody who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him by himself. Put him in a group by themselves. And likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, you know, gets on all fours and drinks directly out of the river. God says to Gideon, keep the dog lappers and send the kneelers home. Now, why he was supposed to choose the dog lappers is not really clear really to anyone. There are a lot of guesses out there. Some commentators speculate that the 300 dog lappers did something very deserving or something noble by lapping the water like a dog. Maybe they were more attentive, you know, watching like there could be enemy around and they're paying attention as they lap up water from their hand or something of that nature. And that's why they were chosen. Some postulate theories like that. The problem with that idea is that the Bible is not a dog-friendly book. Sorry. Anytime someone is compared in any way to a dog in the Bible, that is derogatory. It's never a compliment. The Bible is not sentimental about dogs. Uh, People generally didn't have dogs for pets. Maybe if you were exceedingly wealthy, you might have them for hunting purposes or something of that nature, but people didn't keep pet dogs around. People today love their dogs. I know this. Uh, They care for their dogs most of the time better than they do family members because they're, they're not as mean to their dogs, right? But understand in the culture of Gideon's time, dogs are kind of a derogatory thing. One commentary I read, the commentator was named Doug Stewart. He said that the idea being conveyed here is that the guys who lap water like a dog, that's actually a derogatory statement. It's suggesting that these guys are so low. They are so despicable. They are anything but the best soldiers, anything but elite troops. These are not Navy SEALs. This is the dog lapping squad, right? That's the contrast being put together here. And that does make sense because after all, the whole point of God winnowing down the numbers of troops was so that it would be very clear when the battle was over, who won the victory. That's what God is up to. And it wasn't going to be these guys who won the victory. It was going to be their big big God. And because of that, Israel would hopefully break out of this cycle of sin, which they were repeating over and over and over. And they would learn to stop trusting and looking to gods like Baal and start looking to the one true big God of Israel. And so God leaves Gideon with 300 dog lappers, an army, if you will, a Barney Fife's. Uh, The Midian soldiers now outnumber the Israelites 450 to one. God has a reason for this too. He gives Gideon one more uh, miraculous sign to kind of bolster Gideon's confidence. God is causing the Midianites themselves to have second thoughts about this foray into Israelite territory. They're having dreams and visions about Gideon coming out with an army and destroying them. And God lets Gideon go down and hear them talking about it and hear them expressing some of their fears. And now Gideon thinks, oh, well, if God's doing that, we're ready to go. One thing is certain. Gideon has come to understand that unless God does something utterly and absolutely miraculous here, this battle is lost. This isn't going to work. This is a plan that cannot succeed without God. And so only if, only if the big God shows up will we succeed. And so we read, Gideon divided the 300 men into three companies 
And he put trumpets into their hands of all of them and empty jars. Sounds like a tough army, doesn't it? Trumpets and jars. Yeah. The jars have torches inside. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. That's like midnight to 4 a.m. Um, yeah, 4 a.m. And um, when the watch was changing, we read that they blew the trumpets and they smashed the jars that were in their hands. And then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches and in their right hand the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army of the Midianites ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled, we read. Wow. The Midianites are thrown into mass confusion. They run in terror. They turn on each other and they are completely routed and Israel is now free from years of oppression and hopefully free also from giving their allegiance and their worship to small little gods. They understand hopefully in a fresh way who God is and what God does because God wants people to know you were not intended to live your life in your own strength or with your own wisdom or in your own power. God says, it's my battle. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to face life and the things that come at you and threaten you by yourself. Now, Gideon's story isn't done. It takes some pretty dramatic twists and turns, um, but we don't have time to uh, look at all of those. I would encourage you to go read it. Read it this afternoon. It's just a great story. You see, Gideon is uh, not the only guy in the Bible who wrestles with Midianites, with problems where he's badly outnumbered. Pretty much everybody does. Have you noticed that? If you read the Bible, I mean, Abraham, Moses, David, Joshua, Peter, Paul, all the disciples who follow Jesus, everybody does. Everybody's got plenty of problems that they're processing. And in fact, the single most common command in the Bible, anybody know what it is? Fear not. Do not be afraid. The single most frequent command that we find in the Bible. And you know the reason most frequently forgiven, uh, frequently given for why you shouldn't fear. The number one reason. Fear not, for I am with you. God tells us over and over and over, you don't have to handle this on your own. In fact, you shouldn't. I am a big God and I am with you. And friends, that is so comforting or it should be. It comforts me. You know, I often wake up in the morning looking at what's on the calendar or the schedule. Sometimes it's write a sermon. Sometimes it's meet with people and speak into their lives in very difficult circumstances. And I have to admit If I'm telling the truth, I feel utterly and absolutely inadequate for those kinds of things. 
Sometimes I find myself sitting in the office at home or office here at the church, and I'll think about the problems that people are processing, and they want to talk, they want to meet, they want to talk about how to move forward with those problems. I feel utterly and absolutely inadequate for those kinds of conversations. I think about outcomes, you know, the outcomes we want to, parents want to have for their children, or in my case, even grandchildren, or the outcomes you want to see in your family, how you want to see it change or go or grow and so on, or the outcomes you want to have happen in relationships, or you want to have happen uh, in ministry. And I realized, you know, I have no control over any of these outcomes. There's so little, there's practically nothing I can do to make sure that happens. And sometimes if I'm being honest, man, I, I have to admit that I just want to thresh wheat in a wine press. You know, this summer, as I said, we were up in Canada and when we gather up there, uh, we gather with a lot of extended family. At one point, there were like 28 of us. You can, you can go with me. Um, that's a lot of people, you know, from infants, you know, to people even older than me. Uh, Holly's dad, I think is 88 and I'm only 82. So, but when we all gather, we all bring our stuff, right? You know, this stuff and it's messy. Uh, this year we had a really interesting situation. We had somebody, uh, coming up who's one, one of the grandkids, you know, uh, they're an adult. This is somebody who's been married and been through the pain of a divorce and uh, has decided that she doesn't really trust in or believe in or want to follow Jesus uh, anymore. And, and so she has a partner and uh, wants to bring this partner up and be with family. Um, well, now, wait a minute. Do you want to sleep with this partner? I mean, what would a good pastor say about that? This person makes no bones about following Jesus. And so here I am, I'm watching all of this percolate and form and, and I'm doing this. <laughs> and what do they do? Dwayne, you need to fix this. <laughs> and... Um, we want to love this member of the family. We want to be kind and courteous to their partner. Um, and there's differing opinions about what that would look like. Anybody else have families with stuff like this? That goes, <laughs> yeah, okay. And uh, man, utterly inadequate. I'm utterly inadequate but my God is not got a big God. And I just needed to remember that in that situation, I needed to remember that my God is a big God, a God who loves me, a God who loves this person. I need to remember that the Lord is with me in this and not be fearful and not, you know, be slinking back. And I just need to depend on him. Regardless of the circumstance, I need to seek his wisdom prayerfully, carefully. You want to know what we did? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> See, even when everything is outside of my control, even when I can't figure out necessarily what the right thing always to do is, 
even when the enemy outnumbers me. Four hundred and fifty to one. I just need to live my life with as much hope and joy and trust and obedience as I am able to because the Lord is with me. My big God is with me. I think that's what the Apostle Paul was referring to when he said he wrote to a group of uh, Christians living in Philippi. and, And when he wrote these words, he was actually sitting in prison. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know, I don't, but Paul didn't fear death. Paul was so confident that when he would die, he would go to be with the Lord. Death really didn't fear him. But you know what I'll bet did fear him, cause him to fear? Sitting in a prison. Paul was a man of action. He was bold. I'm just guessing, but I'm guessing that the hardest thing for Paul to process was not being free to go where he needed to go and do what he thought he needed to do. Instead, he was in prison. It's in that context that he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's like Paul takes it to a whole new level. He identifies what it is that enables him to do uh, everything he needs to do. And that, that person is Jesus that makes that possible for him. Jesus specifically is the reason that he can do anything he needs to do and face anything he has to face and endure any hardship. It is clearly, precisely, and totally because of Jesus. Jesus made it clear to Paul that God is not only a big, big God, he is a God who cares. He is a God who rescues. Paul was in Corinth one time. He was actually planting a church and um, he was talking about Jesus and people were hearing and listening and responding, but there was also lots of opposition. There was lots of persecution. Now, Paul, if you know his story, you know that when he would encounter persecution, a lot of times he'd have to get up and leave town. It got so bad. And I'm almost certain that's what he was thinking he was going to have to do. I'm going to have to get up and leave because the persecution is ratcheting way up here. And then we read these words in Acts 18. It says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. There it is right there. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. And here's the words, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. What God is saying is, Paul, there's a lot of people I want to come know me through my son. And I want you to keep talking. Even though, yeah, the circumstances are frightening. The persecution is real. But do not be afraid for I am with you. And I gotta tell you, I think if Jesus were here in the flesh today, standing right here. I think he would tell us the same old thing simply because it's true. Don't be afraid. Trust in me with your relationships. Trust in me with your finances. Trust in me with your children or your grandchildren or your loneliness or your challenging set of circumstances because I am bigger than all that stuff. I am bigger than your failures. I am bigger than your regrets. I'm even bigger than your sin and your guilt.
and I can rescue you. So believe in me, trust in me, follow me. Friends, only Jesus makes possible this big God kind of life. It's a bold way of living. It's his coming. It's his death on the cross. It's his resurrection that overcomes all of the brokenness in our world. Even my sin and guilt. You know, Jesus knows all about the Midianites that are in your life and mine. Jesus knows all about the things that worry you. Jesus knows all about your kids or grandkids, all about what you've lost, all about the divorce, all about the crumbling marriage, all about the betrayal, all about the job failure, all about the dreams and the hopes that maybe haven't been realized. And in the midst of all that, he says, trust me. Every day I will be as big a presence in your life as you need because I am a big God. And so as we enter into this series, this, these weeks of study together, my challenge to you is answer the question to yourself and keep answering it, keep asking and answering it. How big is my God? Am I making him smaller than he really is? Am I forgetting his majesty? Am I forgetting his power? Am I forgetting his sufficiency to see me through this trial? My challenge is for you to live life like a big God person. A person with a God so big. My challenge to you is to live God with big, live life with big God priorities. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a big God. And Lord, you know that we so often lead little God lives. And Father, for anybody here this morning who um, is not really clear about their relationship with you, not really clear about who Jesus is. I pray, God, that you would meet them and have them on a path of inquiry where they could discover how big you are, how good you are, how sufficient you are. And I pray they would come to that place where they would put their faith and their trust and their love in Jesus. Help us help them get clear about those things. And then, Father, I would pray for people who are carrying burdens or carrying worries or carrying concerns, people facing big problems, problems that are way beyond their ability to control. Would you reveal yourself, Lord, even right now to them in ways that encourage them, in ways that breathe life into them? Would you help them, God, know full, fully the fact that you are a God who is bigger than all of those things they face? This we ask. In the name of our big and great Savior, Jesus. Amen.